You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan here on the 22nd day of February 2013. Welcome to episode 259 of the Corbett Report. Meet Adam Curtis, establishment contrarian. The Century of the Self, The Power of Nightmares, Pandora's Box, The Living Dead, all watched over by machines of loving grace. If you are in any way familiar with the alternative media in recent years, and if you're watching and or listening to the Corbett Report, I'll assume that you are, then you are undoubtedly already familiar with at least some of Adam Curtis's voluminous documentary work. If not by name, at the very least, you are familiar with certain passages of it which have been oft-cited in the alternative media literature over the past several years. But just to make sure that we are all on the same page, just for the record, we should establish the who, what, where, when, and whys of Adam Curtis, who is a British filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker, who was born in 1955. He grew up in what what has been described as a left-wing family environment and ended up attending Mansfield College at the University of Oxford, where he studied a course, a Bachelor of Arts degree in Human Sciences including such detailed courses as uh, genetics, evolutionary biology, psychology, politics, anthropology, and statistics. And he went on to uh, start a PhD course, but became disillusioned with academia and eventually dropped out and applied to the BBC, where he was hired and originally set to work creating uh, training documentaries for BBC training courses, etc., He eventually worked his way up and before long was producing feature-length and uh, multi-part documentary series for the BBC. And as I say, many of these, the names of his documentaries are by now familiar to many of you out there, if from no other source than this podcast itself, which has referenced many of these works time and time again. But for the record, some of his more well-known series include the 1992 BBC series Pandora's Box, the 1995 series, The Living Dead, the 1999 series, The Mayfair Set, the 2002 series, The Century of the Self, the 2004 series, The Power of Nightmares, the 2007 series, The Trap, and the 2011 series, all watched over by machines of loving grace. So, as I say, you will be familiar with certain ideas or scenes or memes or themes from various of these documentaries, but let's establish some of the better-known works and some of the works that indeed we have cited here on the Corbett Report in the past, including some very well-known ones, for example, in The Power of Nightmares, specifically in Episode 3, where Adam Curtis establishes, I think in somewhat masterful style, the idea that there is no Al-Qaeda organization per se, and that the idea of that organization was actually invented in a New York courtroom specifically so that that court could try bin Laden as the head of a terror organization under uh, existing American RICO laws, or as one much humbler and much less well-known documentary filmmaker has attempted to put it in the past, Al-Qaeda doesn't exist. Even Bin Laden's displays of strength for the Western media were faked. The fighters in this video had been hired for the day and told to bring their own weapons. 
For beyond his own small group, bin Laden had no formal organization until the Americans invented one for him. In January 2001, a trial began in a Manhattan courtroom of four men accused of the embassy bombings in East Africa. But the Americans had also decided to prosecute bin Laden in his absence. But to do this under American law, the prosecutors needed evidence of a criminal organization. Because as with the Mafia, that would allow them to prosecute the head of the organization, even if he could not be linked directly to the crime. And the evidence for that organization was provided for them by an ex-associate of bin Laden's called Jamal Al-Fadl. During the investigation of the 1998 bombings, there is a walk-in source, Jamal Al-Fadl, who's a Sudanese militant who was with bin Laden in the early 90s, who has been passed around a whole series of Middle Eastern um, secret services, none of whom want much to do with him, who, who ends up in America and is taken on by uh, the American government effectively as a key prosecution witness and given a huge amount of American taxpayers' money at the same time. Um, his account is used as raw material to build up a picture of Al-Qaeda. Uh, the picture that the FBI want to build up is one that will fit the existing laws that they will have to use to prosecute those responsible for the bombing. Now those laws were drawn up to counteract organised crime, the mafia, drugs crime, crimes where people being a member of an organisation is extremely important. You have to have an organisation to get a prosecution. Uh, and you have Al-Fadl and a number of other witnesses, a number of other sources, who are happy to feed into this, who've got material that looked at in a certain way, can be seen to show this organisation's existence. You put the two together and you get what is the first Bin Laden myth, the first Al-Qaeda myth. And because it's one of the first, it's extremely influential. The picture Al-Fadl drew for the Americans of Bin Laden was of an all-powerful figure at the head of a large terrorist network that had an organised hierarchy of control. He also said that Bin Laden had given this network a name, Al-Qaeda. It was a dramatic and powerful picture of Bin Laden, but it bore little relationship to the truth. The reality was that Bin Laden and Ayman Zawahiri had become the focus of a loose association of disillusioned Islamist militants who were attracted by the new strategy. But there was no organisation. These were militants who mostly planned their own operations and looked to Bin Laden for funding and assistance. He was not their commander. There is also no evidence that Bin Laden used the term Al-Qaeda to refer to the name of a group until after September the 11th, when he realised that this was the term the Americans had given him. In reality, Jamal al-Fadl was on the run from Bin Laden, having stolen money from him. In return for his evidence, the Americans gave him witness protection in America and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Many lawyers at the trial believed that al-Fadl exaggerated and lied to give the Americans the picture of a terrorist organisation that they needed to prosecute Bin Laden. And there were selective portions 
of Al-Fadl's testimony that I believe was false to help support the picture that he helped the Americans join together. I think he lied in a number of specific testimony about a unified image of what this organization was. It made Al-Qaeda the new mafia or the new communists. It made them identifiable as a group and therefore made it easier to prosecute any person associated with Al-Qaeda for any acts or statements made by bin Laden, who talked a lot. The idea which is critical to the FBI's uh, prosecution that bin Laden ran a coherent organization with operatives and cells all around the world of which you could be a member is a myth. There is no Al-Qaeda organization. There is no international network with a leader, with cadres who will unquestioningly obey orders, uh, with tentacles that stretch out to sleeper cells in America, in Africa, in Europe. Um, that idea of a coherent, structured terrorist network with an organized capability simply does not exist. Or to cite another well-known example, who could possibly forget that captivating narrative tapestry that Adam Curtis wove in the first episode of The Century of the Self, wherein he demonstrated how Sigmund Freud's American nephew, Edward Bernays, came to found a new era in PR and advertising by tapping into the unconscious fears and desires of the public and thereby not only managing to sell them more products, but to change their very ideas of the mores and mores of society itself. Bernays set out to experiment with the minds of the popular classes. His most dramatic experiment was to persuade women to smoke. At that time, there was a taboo against women smoking, and one of his early clients, George Hill, the president of the American Tobacco Corporation, Ask Bernays to find a way of breaking it. He said, we're losing half of our market because men have invoked the taboo against women smoking in public. Can you do anything about that? I said, let me think about it. And then I said, have I your permission to see a psychoanalyst to find out what cigarettes mean to women? He said, what'll it cost? So I called up Dr. Brill, A.A. Brill, who was a leading psychoanalyst in New York at that time. How come you didn't call your uncle? Why didn't you call your uncle? Because he was in Vienna. A.A. Brill was one of the first psychoanalysts in America. And for a large fee, he told Bernays that cigarettes were a symbol of the penis and of male sexual power. He told Bernays that if he could find a way to connect cigarettes with the idea of challenging male power, then women would smoke, because then they would have their own penises. Every year, New York held an Easter Day parade to which thousands came. And Bernays decided to stage an event there. He persuaded a group of rich debutantes to hide cigarettes under their clothes. Then, they should join the parade, and at a given signal from him, they were to light up the cigarettes dramatically. 
Bernays then informed the press that he had heard that a group of suffragettes were preparing to protest by lighting up what they called torches of freedom. He knew this would be an outcry and he knew that all of the photographers would be there to capture this moment and so he was ready with a phrase which was torches of freedom. And so here you have a symbol, women, young women, debutantes, smoking a cigarette in public with a phrase that means anybody who believes in this kind of equality pretty much has to support them in the ensuing debate about this because torches of freedom. I mean, what's on all American coins? It's liberty. She's holding up the torch. You see, and so all of this is there together. There's emotion, there's memory, there's a rational phrase, even though it's using a lot of emotional elements, it's a, it's a phrase that works in a rational sense. All of this is together. And so the next day, this was not just in all of the New York papers, it was across the United States and around the world. And from that point forward, uh, the sale of cigarettes to women began to rise. He had made them socially acceptable with a single symbolic act. Beyond even these well-known examples, which as I say are oft cited in the alternative media, are hidden gems that are scattered throughout Haddam Curtis's lesser-known documentary work. And as one example of that, we can point to the excellent documentary series Pandora's Box, in which Adam Curtis de demonstrates time and time again how scientific facts even can be manipulated, fudged, and crammed into narrative frameworks, much in the same way as Edward Bernays used psychological manipulation to try to play on people's fears and desires to sell them products. Well, the same process can be done, and often is done, in the quest of rallying the public around whatever the dominant theme of the age is. And we can point specifically to episode four of Pandora's Box, where I think Curtis demonstrates quite amply that that is exactly what has been happening in the modern environmental movement going back at least half a century. Some people have a deep, abiding respect for the natural beauty that was once this country. And some people don't. People start pollution. People can stop it. Two days ago, a man whose controversial predictions of a forthcoming global catastrophe have made him an international figure arrived at London's Heathrow Airport. He is Paul Everett professor of biology at Stanford University, California, and the chief spokesman for the so-called ecological movement. Dr. Ehrlich, just how realistic is your projected theory of the eco-catastrophe? Well, I, I think that uh, it's getting more realistic all the time. The signs are getting worse, but I still have considerable hope because although governments are very slow, uh, people all over the world are uh, awakening very rapidly to what the real danger is. In much the same way as the science of entomology had been changed in the 1950s, now ecology was transformed by the social and political pressures of the early 70s. Ecologists became the moral and spiritual guardians of a new view of the human relationship to nature. And they too cited Darwin's laws to prove that their view was correct. 
nature has a set of laws that all organisms have to obey by necessity because that's the way they evolved. And this applies to human beings, very much so. If you need to introduce into our lives nature, it is a need that is enormously deep. Look around you wherever you go into homes. They are not only living flowers, they're not only aquaria and pets. Look at the wall, what do we see? Sunflowers by Van Gogh or irises by Van Gogh or, or pictures, photographs of landscapes. You don't see framed in a house a picture of a crankshaft from a, from a Ford or, or a, 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 a tin can squashed. Now in, in modern art, which is a sick art, because it reflects the confusion in the human minds. Yes, indeed. Darwin's so big that he can support any number of generalizations about the world. I mean, given Darwin's image as a scientific saint, people inevitably try to get him on the side of their view of nature. Now, Darwin was complex. In The Origin of Species, for example, the metaphors tumble over one another in the most unscientific way. Sure, nature's seen as being at war, but nature's also likened to a web of complex relations. Here then was another aspect of Darwin for people to seize on for their own purposes. Darwin gave them a basis for urging us not to take control of nature, but to cooperate with it, to stay within its balance. Again, Darwin serves up slogans. In the popular imagination, scientific theories are something fixed, and if they're good theories and accepted by creditable people, then they're absolute, and that's that. What people don't understand is that scientific theories never have a single meaning. They, always, they become a cultural property. They are usable, serviceable for different interested parties. Another hidden gem presents itself in episode two of The Living Dead, in which Adam Curtis demonstrates how DARPA has been absolutely fundamental to funding into existence the entire field of academic research into artificial intelligence. At this very same moment, the Cold War also changed direction. It was no longer fought out by human agents. It became instead a war of machines. Both sides now possessed enough nuclear missiles for what was called Mutual Assured Destruction, or MAD. The fear was that the slightest mistake could lead to all-out war. To those in charge of America's defense, the idea of intelligent machines was extremely attractive. Their memories would be completely controllable. Unlike human beings, they would not make mistakes. Artificial intelligence emerged at the point at which there was the immediate worry of a war, some kind of a rationally breaking out war, and that maybe this was some way of helping to control the situation. So there was a lot of magic thinking, I think, that was set loose by the concept of artificial intelligence, that we would have a wonderful kind of control, a big brother control, kind of thing. and it was always a tempting one. It wasn't, it wasn't quite a mean Orwellian one. It was like the people in Orwell, they thought it would be great, things would be looked after. And scientists, you have to understand, always go the easy route. 
Once again, cognitive science became caught up in the political pressures of the Cold War. The Department of Defense, through its research agency, ARPA, offered to fund the whole of the new discipline of artificial intelligence. In return, the scientists' work would be used to build intelligent weapons. The source of this funding was kept very quiet. The scientists were embarrassed. They didn't want the public to find out what their real job was. You have to remember that ARPA's uh, funding of artificial intelligence was for military purposes. But many of the people in that community come from liberal intellectual institutions. Uh, they, they particularly are not uh, interested in military uh, objectives. And so ARPA has always been very good at being able to marshal those forces and to trick them or lead them or move them in directions that have significant military benefits. It had an explicit goal of transitioning this technology into the military-industrial complex. How do you trick these researchers, these scientists? You lead them in directions that are useful militarily without uh, explicitly asking them to think about the applications. We'd say to them, let's work on TV image processing. And they would get results that would be applicable to processing of imagery for military purposes. So, pitch, ready, execute. Now, we could go on and on and on, probably for an entire podcast episode, just highlighting those various pieces of Adam Curtis documentaries that are worth highlighting, and there are many, many more besides. So once again, I will exhort you to go and to watch Adam Curtis's documentaries in their totality, not just the little clips that are often played in the alternative media, but to really explore the works of Adam Curtis, because they do deserve exploring. But before this becomes an Adam Curtis love fest, perhaps we should start living up to the title of today's episode and exposing, well, some of the other side of the Adam Curtis documentaries, some of the side that I think is less reputable and something that we should be very cautious of. So let's get into some of the criticisms that we can level at Curtis. And I think the most obvious one is that clearly Adam Curtis is something of an auteur. He's very much a stylist with a certain identifiable style, and the charge has certainly been leveled, and I think not without some accuracy, that uh, Curtis's documentaries can swerve into the idea of style over substance. And this is a point that we could elaborate, but why elaborate it at great length when we can do so in a fun style by a very, very spot-on parody of Adam Curtis's style that's been put together by one ambitious YouTube user. This is a short film about a documentary filmmaker who made critically lauded programs for the BBC and about how, along the way, he proved that style always triumphs over substance. Wherever you find them, friendly people, gracious customs, both mean true hospitality today, tomorrow, and all through the years to come. 
1992, a strange and brilliant That's Life researcher with a skinny puppy CD embarked upon a career of producing documentaries about how ideas can spark social movements. Adam Curtis believed that 200,000 Guardian readers watching BBC Two could change the world. But this was a fantasy. In fact, he had created the television equivalent of a drunken late-night Wikipedia binge with pretension to narrative coherence. Combining archive documentary material with interviews, Curtis filled in the gaps by vomiting grainy library footage onto the screen to a soundtrack of Brian Eno and Nine Inch Nails. He had discovered that it did not matter what footage he used, so long as he changed the shot so bewilderingly fast that the audience didn't notice the chasm between argument and conclusion. This was especially effective when he simply cut the music mid-bar. And as a result, Sabo and Beke were swept to power at the next general election. Meanwhile, in America, a strange and brilliant cameraman was shooting stock footage of Death Valley, California. Curtis implied that this was somehow relevant to the labyrinthine argument he was constructing. His audience believed that it would turn out to be of crucial significance. But this was a fantasy. Curtis never returned to Death Valley or the cameraman. He had discovered that they did not matter because five minutes later, his audience had simply forgotten about them. But this did not matter because Curtis spoke with such an impeccable, authoritative BBC manner that the audience took even gross generalizations and unsupported value judgments to be the absolute truth. They simply went along with it. And thanks to Adam Curtis, Brian Eno never had to work again. I don't know about you guys, but as someone who has watched dozens of hours of Adam Curtis's work, I have to say that is absolutely a spot-on parody. It is so well done. So my hat's off to uh, the person who put that together. Just a, a brilliant little piece of parody that shows, I think, the point that uh, Curtis can be a little bit style over substance. But I think there's actually a more substantive critique of Adam Curtis that we can level, one that goes to the heart of the title of today's podcast, that, in fact, when you really break it down, Adam Curtis turns out to be an establishment contrarian. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, let's start taking a look at some specific examples. And I think it's important for us to understand in the alternative media that when we direct people to the power of nightmares, for example, because we want them to pick up that that excerpt in which uh, Adam Curtis demonstrates that Al-Qaeda is a fictional organization that's been put together in a New York courtroom, we are also at the same time directing them to a documentary which unproblematically forwards the idea that the neocons really believe in this idea of spreading freedom and democracy, and that's what really is motivating their various wars of aggression around the world. The scale of this fantasy just kept growing as more and more groups realized the power it gave them. Above all, the group who had been instrumental in first spreading the idea, the neoconservatives. Because they now found they could use it to help them realize their vision, that America had a special destiny to overcome evil in the world. And this epic mission 
would give meaning and purpose to the American people. What's more, the documentary goes along with the assertion that these spectacular acts of terror that have ushered in this war on terror paradigm like 9-11 are truly the acts, unproblematically and without any help, of radical Islamists who have been stirred up by the blind fervor of their own ideology, and that actors like Ayman al-Zawahiri are unproblematically adherents to the radical Muslim philosophy of people like Saeed Qutb, in exact contradiction to the very interesting pieces of the Zawahiri puzzle that we were looking at in last week's episode of this podcast. Throughout the 80s and 90s, Zawahiri had tried to persuade the masses to rise up and topple the rulers who had allowed this corruption to infect their countries. But the revolutionaries became trapped in a horrific escalation of violence because the masses refused to follow them. Islamism failed as a mass movement and Zawahiri now came to the conclusion that a new strategy was needed. They had no revolution at all. I mean, they had failed in their takeover. They had failed to topple the powers that be. And, uh, you know, they became more and more interested in, in uh, this idea that only a small vanguard could, um, could be successful. I mean, they had lost confidence in the spontaneous capacity of the masses to be mobilized. Then they decided to change strategy completely. And instead of striking at what they call the near enemy, i.e. the local regimes, they decided that they could strike at the faraway enemy, i.e at the West, at America, and that would impress the masses, and uh, the masses would be mobilized. Zawahiri and bin Laden began implementing this new strategy in August 1998. Two huge suicide bombs were detonated outside American embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, killing more than 200 people. The bombings had a dramatic effect on the West. For the first time, the name bin Laden entered the public consciousness as a terrorist mastermind. Or, for example, when we direct people to the living dead because we want them to see those fascinating parts of that documentary series dealing with such things as, for example, DARPA, or as, the, as it was known at the time, ARPA's involvement in the creation of the field of artificial intelligence, we're also directing them to a documentary which posits that Lee Harvey Oswald really did kill Kennedy, and the CIA's only concern over that fact was whether or not Lee Harvey Oswald was in fact a mind-controlled assassin who had been programmed by the Ruskies. The assassination of President Kennedy began to tear the CIA apart. Some within the organization believed that Lee Harvey Oswald had been trained by the Soviet Union to kill the president. Others feared that it was the result of their own assassination program that somehow had gone horribly wrong. Either way, those who interrogated Oswald became convinced he had not acted alone. Someone else seemed to be in control of his behavior and his mind. I was amazed that a person so young would have the self that he had, it was almost as if he had anticipated the situation 
It was almost as if he had been rehearsed or programmed to meet the situation that he found himself in. Uh, it was almost as if he anticipated every question, every suggestion, every move that any of the people in charge of him made. Rehearsed by whom? Who knows? Have anything to say in your defense? Four years before he shot President Kennedy, Oswald had defected to the Soviet Union. To many, this was proof he was a Soviet agent. But two months after his death, a KGB agent defected to America. His name was Yuri Nosenko. He told the CIA that his job had been to watch Oswald in Russia. He assured them that Oswald had never been trained by the KGB. It was the beginning of paranoia inside the CIA. Some senior officers refused to believe Nosenko. They had another KGB defector called Anatoly Golitsyn. He told them that Nosenko was false. He had been sent by the KGB to trick them. Nosenko is the key because Nosenko handled uh, Harvey Lee Oswald in Russia for the KGB. Mr. Golitsyn says that Nosenko is a uh, Soviet plant to mislead American intelligence. So when Nosenko says that Oswald was not acting on behalf of the KGB, that means that in fact Oswald was acting on behalf of the KGB. And there you go, and you are in the wilderness of mirrors. You see everything, and in fact you see nothing. Nasenko was held in complete isolation by the CIA and interrogated day and night, but he stuck to his story. But those in charge of his interrogation did not believe him. They were convinced he had been implanted with false memories by the KGB. Nasenko's brain is the depository of the truth. Whatever the truth is, is in his memory, in his, is in his brain. And the thing is to find a key which will open that brain so we can find the true memory from the false memory. Now, I hope you're starting to understand just how insidious this whole process can be by which Adam Curtis can insert mainline, mainstream pieces of narrative history into his documentaries just as a given, as a baseline understanding upon which he builds the rest of his work. So that no matter how excellent those little gems and little pieces of history that he uncovers are, they're still based on that very doctrinaire reading of history that we are all supposed to assume and take for granted, that Lee Harvey Oswald killed Kennedy, that Ayman al-Zawahiri is a, is a terrorist who hates you for your freedoms, that these things are truly, really true, and that we don't have to interrogate them. Now, I assume if you're watching this podcast, and if you've seen it at all in the past, you know that that's very much not the place where I'm coming from, and I would assume that not many in the audience holds that to be true either, that there is much more going on 
on. And just as one example, we can point once again to last week's podcast episode where we demonstrated through, for example, the, the testimony of FBI whistleblower Sabelle Edmonds that Ayman al-Zawahiri was working for and with and hand-in-hand and taking orders from NATO Gladio B uh, operatives right there in the 1990s in the lead-up to 9-11. So, once again, I wonder how Adam Curtis would deal with something like that in his attempt to boil everything down, for example, to the radical Muslim Saeed Qutb manifesto that that holds that this is all about holy terror to convert people to Muslim uh, Islam. Well, there's obviously much, much more going on under the surface that isn't being being interrogated in these documentaries. And it's not just a disservice to the information that these types of things are inserted into these documentaries as a given. It's actually one of the most violent disservices that can be done to taint this otherwise good information, just like putting a little bit of cyanide into a, a tasty cake will make that cake deadly. So putting a tiny bit of mainline narrative into these otherwise interesting pieces of history makes the entire thing a deadly poison for those who are really trying to get at the bedrock truth that underlies this. So that when we are presented with the idea that these I- ideologies that are supposedly the motivating force behind this cartoon theater that's presented before us, that it's this uh, the, uh, these dastardly alcohol Al-Qaeda terrorists who, whether or not they belong to Al-Qaeda, at any rate, they really do believe in this radical Muslim uh, philosophy. And and the neocons truly believe in these wars to spread freedom and democracy. And that's what the real ideological battle that's taking place. When we start to sign on to that, we start to buy into the comic book paradigm in total. No matter what little pieces of that we question, if we take that as our baseline understanding, we're already lost. So I would argue that we need a much, much more refined idea of the ideologies that are really motivating the people that are at the, that stage of po- politics and on the big theater, the big uh, theater of the geo- geopolitical stage. And that is something that, again, can be manipulated. People can be driven off into little side alleys of the, that. Uh, once they start to question that system even a little bit, they can be railroaded into this or that issue. So that, for example, once you start to question, well, what is really motivating these these neocons, for example? Is, is it truly that they want to spread freedom and democracy? And once you start to question that, the next idea, the next layer of ideology might be presented to you. Well, actually, I, th- I think it's really about money. That's what it's really about. That's the really motivated and driven by money and they're just greed and it's it's trying to enrich themselves so we can look at Halliburton and those types of connections and we can we can question to that extent but no further or the, then there's the next ideology and the next ideology and they're like layers on the onion until you get to the bottom the base of what is really motivating these people and that is the base the bottom the bedrock that will never be uh, struck by an Adam Curtis documentary because it will never go that many layers down into the core of the onion. So this is a problem that I was attempting to tackle recently in an interview that I did on the Mind Renewed podcast at themindrenewed.com. I was being interviewed on that podcast about the ideologies that are motivating the globalists who are puppeteering this system and putting all these phony ideologies out for people to swallow about freedom and democracy and radical Muslims and all of this that's being used to direct people. And I was attempting to articulate some of the complexities that are actually underneath this and that are really motivating the very many characters who are in this global game for many different reasons. 
Let's consider the two main areas in which a push towards new world order can be most clearly seen, at least it seems to me anyway. So first of all, we have the US-NATO expansionism, which many people would see as a kind of corporate fascist expansionism and making way for Western-style corporate industrial domination. So let's say, just for the sake of it, to call that, uh, let's label that right wing, because I think a lot of people would see it that way. And then on the other hand, we have clearly a move towards a new world order through the Earth Charter, Agenda 21, Climate Change Agenda. I know that's the case because Lord Moncton made it very clear at one of the UN climate change conferences that the world government was in view there. I think it appeared in one of the draft treaties. And these, it's often claimed, have to do with the destruction of industrial nations, the redistribution of wealth between nations, as it says in the Earth Charter. So we could label that as a kind of left wing, say a globalist kind of left wing. So the question is here, do these ultimately represent different elites behind these moves? Or could we be seeing a kind of 21st century manifestation of what Anthony Sutton believed was happening in the 20th century, which you were referring to, I think, a few minutes ago, that the same inner circle of collectivists were behind the financing of both Nazi Germany and communist Russia. Do we have in the modern era a kind of globalist right wing and a globalist left wing, both ultimately being manipulated by the same elite? I would say so, but it's not necessarily as definitive as that. I think there may be overlap between various factions of what is, again, a group of individuals who are united by an ideology, the ideology being ultimately, I think, the establishment of that world government. But there are different paths towards the establishment of that world government. So this might be easiest to, I think, exemplify in a specific example. So, for example, within the United States political context, you have People like, for example, Henry Kissinger, who has traditionally been associated with the right side of the left-right political spectrum. He's served many Republican administrations, and he represents, I think, broadly speaking, that uh, I suppose the global domination by force type of idea of the NATO-US expansionism, etc., that path towards some mm -hmm. sort of world, world order at the end of a barrel of a gun. Broadly speaking, I, I wouldn't want to simplify it to that degree, but I think that broadly we could say that that's the side of the argument that someone like Henry Kissinger would come on. Another person who I think would be the mirror image of that and coming from more of the left side of that spectrum would be someone like Zbigniew Brzezinski, who again has had enormous influence, certainly in a number of Democratic administrations, most notably in the Jimmy Carter administration where he was national security advisor. And I would say that his uh, strategy might represent a more palatable idea of world governance, governance and world dominance by uh, the left side of that political spectrum, whereby it's not necessarily direct confrontation and bombing countries to smithereens directly, but more like playing different sides off against each other from a distance and being sort of the, the innocent bystander on the side. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I think that's one example of how there can be two different aspects, two different ideas, two different frameworks for accomplishing the same thing. And I don't necessarily believe that someone like Kissinger and, and Brzezinski are mortal enemies. I think they're connected by a number of organizations to which they both belong. For example, Henry Kissinger, part of that Bilderberg steering committee, and Zbigniew Brzezinski, a former Bilderberg attendee. So again, they are connected to some of these organizations, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have the same idea of how to arrive at the world order, or even necessarily that they have the exact same idea of what that world order would look like or who would be involved in it. 
But at the end of the day, I think, of course, they have more in common uh, with each other than they would with with you or I or most of the people listening to this podcast, for example. So I think that we can look at it in those terms. It's not necessarily that these are the same people in the sense that they are identical. It's not necessarily that they are mortally opposed to each other. It's more, I would say, that they have a similar aim, but they have different methods for getting there. And I think that each side of that fight, assuming there are only two sides, there might be a number of different factions, but each side in that struggle wants to become the dominant one that will use their way to get to proceed forward. And in some ways, I think you could make the argument that at the very least, that sort of right wing idea of the the expansionist philosophy and the left wing idea of the UN Earth Charter, the climate change agenda, all of that need each other in order to become even more effective. When you can have two sides that play off against each other and seem like the only two options that are possible, it's easier to steer people into that debate in a way that they don't even understand they're choosing sides in a false choice that's been presented to them. So they it can make it look like that there are actually two different agendas on the table when in fact at the end of the day they lead towards the same idea. So do we really have the picture here of a kind of convergence of various groups and individuals all of whom just happen to believe that some sort of world government is a necessity, a kind of desirable goal for history? Is that essentially what we're looking at? I think that that's, again, it's hard to psychologize, I think, these people. I think there are different motivations behind different people who are involved at different levels, who have different understandings, who might be involved for different reasons in different groups. Again, I think there's a tendency to want to simplify this to a a simple black or white or to say that there is this or that phenomenon taking place when I think there are a number of different things that converge. And I think there are as many different reasons for different people to be involved at the various levels of this vast space sprawling organization or organizations as there are people themselves. I think everyone has their own parts to play in this. And obviously, the easiest way to describe this to the vast majority of people is to appeal to their sense of, oh, this is about greed. And people are looking for personal enrichment of finances, for example. They want to be the ones controlling the purse strings. I think that's the easiest way for most people to understand it, because, again, most of the people that you or I would interact with are the type of people who work for their living for their entire lives. And that tends to be one of the defining points of their life. How do you make you earn your living? How do you make enough money to survive? Although I think that that's too much of a, a reductionist idea for this philosophy that's driving at least the people who are, I think, in the core of this rings within rings structure, because I think those people are, are well beyond the, the need to provide for the physical Absolutely. and material yeah. safety of their family or even the wildest dreams of avarice. I think we're talking about the point where Money doesn't even have meaning, I think, at that level of society, because these are the people who actually control the central banks that actually create the money itself. So money isn't the object for these people. I think it has to be seen in terms of, at the very least, just a lust for power and control. And I think that might be explained by recourse, for example, to psychopathy. And uh, there have been Mm. some very important studies towards that idea that there are scientifically uh, deducible from from everything that we can tell. There are people whose brains actually do process the world differently than the vast majority of people and that they do not have the actual standard 
empathies and emotions that the vast majority of the population does. And the best estimates are that there's something in the range of 4% of the population that falls into this category of psychopathy. And it, I think it at least provides one interpretive framework that it tends to be these types of people who fall into the positions where that who are literally willing to supersede any normal, what we would consider normal bounds of ethics in the pursuit of power over other human beings. And again, that's just one interpretive framework, of course. Yeah, sure. Of sure. course, there's spiritual aspects to this, etc., which I don't tend to go into in my own work. But uh, I know, for example, people like Dr. Stan that you were talking to last week mm -hmm. do. And I think that that's absolutely important for people to follow. I don't presume to be an authority on those types of matters, so I don't speak on them to that degree. But uh, but certainly there is something much, much more fundamental to this than money itself. And I think this also ties into one of the other driving parts of this whole agenda, which is the idea of eugenics. And I think there is a certain lust to maintain a certain bloodline or certain bloodlines, I think that's very much a part of this agenda. And I think that what motivates some of these people at these elite levels of society is the idea that they want to propagate their gene pool per se in, into the future and to eliminate others from that gene pool. And I think that's absolutely an important part of this that has to be understood to really see the bigger picture. And curiously with that, from their perspective, that could be seen as a, a purely good thing, because obviously if they are the superior ones, then that's going to be the best thing for the world if they're in control. <laughs> exactly right. And this is exactly why eugenics was developed in the late 19th century by British gentlemen scientists who came up with the theory that basically British gentlemen scientists <laughs> and their ilk were the, uh, the creme de la creme of the human species and uh, thus deserved to be at the apex of civilization as they so self-evidently were. And it's, a, of course, a thoroughly not only a racist ideology, but a total pseudoscience. It is quackery on so many levels and has been, I think, disproven on so many different levels, scientifically speaking, even. But unfortunately, eugenics still persists to the current day under different guises. And I think that's where we can identify, for example, a lot of the, the motivation behind the United Nations and a lot of its operations and behind the climate change agenda and uh, many of the other aspects of this is a real lust to depopulate the majority of the planet. And I think that that is another key part of this agenda, which unites a lot of people on different sides, different factions of this uh, New World Order quest. I think another thing that unites a lot of these people is this drive towards a, uh, a smaller humanity that would be, I suppose, manageable in the sense that they, I think, ultimately want to bring in, which is a sense of a totalitarianism that goes far beyond anything that's been seen before in history. I think that a lot of people dismissively say the New World Order is just the same old world order. But I think we are on the cusp of a scientific revolution that enables a type of tyranny, the likes of which could never have been dreamt before in human history, to the point where we are getting to the point where we can actually engineer the species, the human species at the genetic level. And I think when we start taking that into account as part of the game plan for this New World Order system, it becomes something of absolutely the utmost importance, not just to ourselves or to our loved ones or even to humanity as a whole as it exists right now, but for the future of the human species, which is why I think it's so important for people to inform themselves about this and to really start engaging with this information and coming to their own conclusions. Again, I'm not here to provide the definitive answers that people must adhere to. I'm simply here to provide information as I've found it and, and some of the sources that I find useful. 
As fascinating as Adam Curtis's narratives are, I think they're still not quite as fascinating as the real complexities of the real world and the real motivations that are behind these characters that are in these positions of power. And while some of the characters who are in these grand plays might actually believe in some of these ideologies. There are real Muslims who really do believe in radical Islam, and there there are conservatives who really do believe in spreading freedom and democracy at the barrel of a gun. And all of this type of uh, rhetoric that's put out to the masses, there are even people in the system who really are in it just for personal wealth and aggrandization. There are people who are motivated for different concerns. There are psychopaths. There are other people. And they all come together, but I think the real underlying motive and philosophy that, that is at the base of this is that quest for for ultimate control and power and ultimately the elimination of all of those people who are not part of one's clan or group and this goes back to that eugenics ideology that is driving so many of the people who are in the real positions of power and for whom things like money and 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 islam etc have no no meaning even no no i no possible force as a motivating factor. And I think that that is where we have to start locating the real base of what's going on in our society, and that a lot of these other ideologies that are thrown out uh, on the the six o'clock news are really thrown out as smoke screens and distractions to keep us completely occupied on things that are ultimately at the end of the day, not of the ultimate significance to where we are really being led as a society. That is an awful lot to take in in one podcast episode, so I'm going to leave it there with the caveat that I don't want people to take away from this episode the idea that I I don't think Adam Curtis's documentaries have any value or that people should not watch them at all. As I hope I've demonstrated today, there are fascinating pieces of history that I have learned through these documentaries and little tidbits, and people can go back into my past episodes, episode 175 about the Rand Corporation, for example, using an excerpt from The Trap. I've used Adam Curtis's documentaries many times in this podcast, and it's because there are some genuinely uh, great pieces of documentary filmmaking in that work. So once again, I hope you will go and take a look at his documentaries. But as long as we do it in the mindset and with the knowledge that there is a sophisticated level of propaganda going on here to try to corral people back into some of these mainline historical narratives and to believe the official story on things like 9-11 and the JFK assassination, etc., So we're going to leave it there for today, but once again, I want to thank all of you out there for your support, both financial and otherwise, that help to keep this podcast coming. So once again, I couldn't do it without all of you. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report. I dressed myself and left my home I kept inside my lazy gnome I kept inside my dusty phone The Corbett Report is brought to you by you. Your support makes The Corbett Report possible. Sign up for the subscriber newsletter or purchase a DVD at corbettreport.com support.